You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Can we give our praise team another round of applause, please? We're by no means here to put focus on ourselves, but as being part of that team and the leadership that's over there, what they put into it is awesome, and we're very blessed to have such an awesome team, not only for the talents, but for their fervency of the Lord. So I'm thankful for our praise team this morning. But man, I told first service, I said, I could have, I'm not devaluing the sermon, but I could have literally sat and sang That's that last song for the hour and been okay. It, it, it stirs me so much. He is for you. He is for you. Amen. Amen. And so it shall be. He is for you. In hot pursuit, he is for you. Amen? Amen. That's something to be excited about. This, over the course of the next seven or eight weeks, we are going to be starting a new sermon series called The Keys of Happiness where we go through the Beatitudes. And um, I was honored when Jeff asked me to do the first message in the series introducing exactly what it is that it'll be highlighting, what we'll be talking about, the preference of what is this Sermon on the Mount and why did it start with the Beatitudes that it did. Um, it's not often Jeff takes a break. Not very often Jeff takes a break and I'm, I'm glad that he feels confident enough to have, it's not just myself, we have a, a, a few other men that you know very well that'll be speaking as well, but he has confidence that the Lord's work will happen, and he can take rest, especially after preaching through Revelation. Am I right? So thank you, Pastor Jeff. So let's talk about it. We've come a long way. Um, for those of you that don't know me, it's not important, but you usually see me back there behind the drums, and uh, it's been a long time since I've come and preached, and me and Jeff were laughing a little bit this morning because uh, I was an intern here at the church, and he was raising me up. And, and helping me understand a calling and, and how uh, to deliver messages and the mechanics behind that, but more so the heart behind it. But we used to laugh because when I would come with my preparation, in those days it was a sticky note. And I'd come up here and put the sticky note right here, and I would just go to town. And I don't know if it's with age, discernment, or stress, because I have a lot of kids now, but uh, I don't do that anymore. So we are organized and on point this morning. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 3. It is again the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount as well as the first beatitude. And it reads, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. God, we thank you again for this opportunity to come to a place so safe comfortable to just worship you in spirit and in truth, to throw our hands up and raise our voices and worship you in our song. I pray now that we worship you through the diligent hearing of your teaching, not by the words of, of Nikki or even Jeff, when he, but by the hearing of your words through the vessel that stands in this place. God, I pray that the word becomes an organism that grows inside of all who hear it to where they cannot help 
but get closer to you and share it with others. Today, as we go through these Beatitudes, God, I pray that we do not focus on them as being a means or a checklist on what a Christian looks like, but rather what the heart is. Mold us, create in us that new desire to to run after you, and let us study your word and hear your voice this morning. It's in your name we pray. So let's talk about exactly what's going on here. We know the Sermon on the Mount very, very well. It's very popular. We've written it as the greatest, or categorized as the greatest sermon ever preached. One of the most known texts, probably one of the most preached on texts. It's been coined as the catchphrases of Christ. It's just everything that embodies this is Christian living. It is this big pedestal of a text. So odds are, if you don't know it, you've at least heard of it. It's during a time when Jesus was at the height of his ministry. He was known and more so, one of the few times where he's more known in a positive light than a negative light. This is before things really start to get extremely heated. He has a, a flood of people that follow him everywhere that he goes. Everywhere that he goes, he has people that want to either judge him, know who he is and are excited about it, know who he is and are not excited about it, and those who are just straight up directly following him that he's called upon. At this time, there's not a distinct location that has been given, but we do know that before and after he was traveling in northern Israel, and it is believed that this mountain particularly relies on the Chorazin Plateau. He has just been, uh, in chapter 3, he was baptized by John. Chapter 4, he went through his sojourn and his temptation in the desert, and now we find him walking this path in northern Israel, and the events take place. (coughs) Excuse me. So, a couple things that I want to highlight here is the purpose behind the Sermon on the Mount and some things that I've had wrong for years about the Sermon on the Mount that have changed the meaning of it entirely. Entirely. The first being the purpose that Christ's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount were very familiar to the people there because they were still of the Old Testament law and teachings because he did not come to replace or to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Rather than taking them away and saying we're going to scrap that and do this, these teachings align with the Old Testament. However, he is here to give them a new focus and a new meaning that is under the new covenant. The people that he is speaking to have the law. They've lived as close as they can in accordance to the law but have still missed the mark. We see that in uh, Revelation when Jeff was preaching where Paul would write letters to churches and say, you've done this, this, and this so well, but did not love. Or you've done this, this, and this, but you don't have the heart that's in it. There's so many often times where we look at this text as how to live a Christian life. What does a Christian look like? And by doing that, we are putting value on what we do rather than our need for what he's done. And so Christ is using this particular moment to turn that on its head and allow people to refocus that it is through him and him alone that you shall be saved. You see, he physically completes the law when he carries out the gospel, when he carries the cross, when he takes on our sin, takes on our iniquity, dies, and rises again. He physically fulfilled the law. And it was spiritually fulfilled in that moment. And throughout his life and his walk and his teaching, he is mentally fulfilling the law by giving it purpose that aligns with the will of the Father. He says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, 
But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon people's feet. Let's not be the salt that lost its taste. Let's do as we are to do with the hearts that God's called us to have. So therefore, the overarching purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is just to bring new light and refocus religious people into having relationship with God, into having fellowship with righteousness. Because it's one thing to be religious and another thing to be a child of God, a servant of God, pursuing and running after God. And that's what he's calling us to do this morning through this text. You see, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Christ never told anybody to follow him up the mountain. He never spoke a word to the crowd. He simply is walking, turned, sees the crowd, goes to the mountain, and he sits. And everybody flocks to him, and they sit to hear what he has to say. He he didn't instruct them that they needed to come and listen. That right there contradicts everything in my mind that I had about the Sermon of the Mount because, because we hold so highly the Sermon of the Mount, I have it in my head. Anytime I think about it, that uh, it's like MLK delivering a speech. You know, you see with the mass crowds and him on the podium, the microphones. Like this is Jesus on the mountaintop delivering the Sermon of Sermons to a massive crowd of people. Think about when the presidents give the speeches on the lawn with the fountain and there's just a wave of people you know, on the podium. That's where I kind of had the Sermon on the Mount. Why did Jesus go on the Mount? In my head, I was saying he went up there to be elevated, to have a voice that could carry over the land, when in fact, I couldn't be anything further from the truth. See, because I thought that about the Sermon on the Mount, I made it a very general sermon. It was told to masses. It was about every condition of life, this, that, and the other. When in fact, Jesus walked up a mountain and sat down his disciples came to him. Crowds of people were around him. We can guarantee they were not all his followers, but at this point he has his chosen disciples. His disciples came and sat down with him, and he began to teach them. He knew he'd be overheard by the crowd, but his intention was to address some things in the hearts of those who were close to him, his disciples, his followers, in that moment, with the extra intention of what he's teaching them to be heard by others to be carried out. He knew the hearts of those around him and knew that they would benefit from hearing what he wanted to say, but he was more so focused on addressing the conditions of those closest to him. And that's important. That's extremely important because a lot of times we think about the Great Commission, you know, I gotta go and do and I gotta go and talk to people and uh, I'm not that kind of person. I don't wanna talk or I, I think about me and my wife. I love to talk, I talk a lot. She's We'll attest to that, no problem. I like being the life of the party. I like being seen. I enjoy carrying conversations, meeting new people, all of that. That's me, inside and out. You tell me, hey, we're going to go door to door and knock people. I'm like, let's go. Whereas my wife, she also enjoys meeting people and things like that, but keep, she, she, she wants none of that limelight, not a bit. So it can be kind of intimidating when 
man, we're supposed to be like Jesus, and he's out here preaching on a mountain and overcasting the entire city that hears these grander words. And in fact, he sat down, just sat down, and had a personal conversation that could be overheard by the crowd around him. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that credible? He wasn't delivering this massive message, but rather having a small lesson that was a teachable moment for everyone. And in his words, he spoke clearly, concisely, and, and didn't, didn't fabricate anything, just straight to the point. Things that would resonate well with everyone. So I was wrong. He sat. He didn't posture up. He chose a mountain. Much like when Moses got the law of the mountain, bringing the law into the new light of the covenant, he did it on a mountain. A little fun side, side note, but amazing how intentional and beautiful God's work is. So if you have the mindset that this is not a general large delivered sermon that went out to all the people and now we need to live by it but rather that you're in that small circle on the mountain not overhearing the sermon on the mount but you are the reason for it it changes completely the meaning of every beatitude because i used to smoke through right through these things <laughs> i would just read them bling bloom bloom yeah blessed are the poor those are kingdom blessed are those who mourn and i would just go through them I'm like oh these are life values i got that i know that i could do like flashcards but if you, I, I remember when Jeff told me that I had the first one, I was like, he's lobbing me a, a slow pitch. That was easy, you know? And then I started studying and realized a couple things I had wrong contextually about the Sermon on the Mount, and I was like, oh. And I started focusing more and more on each little word and piece, and I was like, this is some stuff. This is some stuff. And now I'm more excited about this series than I could ever be. I've been saved for going on 11 years and in ministry for just, just about all of it. And I'm just now finding these elementary things in a text that I've learned and read and even spoke on over and over again to where I'm over there telling Jeff like, oh, uh, I gotta make sure I don't pull this one out of the filing cabinet. I'm prideful. The moment I even turn to the first sentence of the scripture, Jesus is like, bet you didn't know that. And I was like, Okay, touche. So with that being said, consider it that this is specifically talking to you and about you, as I am talking about me. First beatitude. What are the beatitudes? Beatitudes are known, as I said, as Jesus' most popular teachings, the catchphrases of Christ, the means of living, the checklist of a Christian living. Couldn't be any further from the truth. It's not the checklist. There's a direct translation here. They all start with blessed is. Blessed translates in Greek to happy. That's why we called it Keys of Happiness. The sermon series is called the Keys of Happiness. But we understand this happiness that Christ is talking about. It's not this worldly happiness. It's not a happiness brought on by possession or stature. Happiness is to be in fellowship with God. So when you read these Beatitudes, they can really be chomped down to Happy are the followers of God who, and then he delivers exactly what he's talking about. That's just to give context that when it says blessed, it's like, oh, yeah, blessed. Blessings are given to the poor. Because, and before I would say, oh, cool, God cares about poor people. Like, that's awesome. God should have care for poverty, right? That's the read-through. When really, he's saying, happy are the ones who follow me despite this 
undesirable condition of living because. So happy are the followers of God despite being poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's unpack that a little bit. Christ is planning to address the motives of the people, those who even claim and have the stature of being the most religious people. He wants them to be humble followers of God rather than statues of Christian life. He will show these people conditions of living that are extremely undesirable, uh, frowned upon, even more extreme than what we do in our society today, and flip them on their head. I mean, nobody wants to be poor. But to be poor in this time carried a lot more weight to it. So how does he go through the Beatitudes? Here's a really undesirable condition that you, my disciples, have probably judged, looked down upon, or turned away from entirely, not even given the time of day because you saw it unfit for your time in ministry. Well, did you know they're actually in high favor with the Father? And boy, did you miss something. He does it with contradictory teaching. He says, those who are poor, blessed, wealthy, the kingdom is theirs. Those who mourn shall have happiness. Those who are, you know, not good at cardio will be able to run miles, right? One can hope. Look, I got a dream. I'm going to get fit again one day. In this time, poverty meant something extreme. Today's day and age, we think of poverty. We think of homeless. We think of struggling. We think of people who rely on their survival skills and the help of others. They uh, get by with what they can and are just living day to day. But something important to note, and this isn't to make it as though it is easy to be you know, homeless or poor today, but they're still valued as people. They're still held accountable to, but also protected by the law. Many places have aid and assistance, opportunity even, for them to dig themselves out of that, that state of being poor. And most communities have shelters and things of that nature to help them get through that even provide medical service. In Christ's times, if you were poor, you were despicable. You were unfit to be seen in public. You were often used as labor of land, and your payment was the food to get you the energy to do the labor of land. They were not considered humans by civil means, which often led them to be considered as disposable, with no protection from law or authority. It would become sport to sometimes capture, enslave, kill. Let somebody that is poor at this time bump into somebody who's not. Thrown to the ground, rolled out onto the street. It was also thought that if you were wealthy in this time, you're in good favor with God. If, you, if the king of kings loves you, you're not going to eat at his table and not look like royalty. So those who are in favor with God must be in high possession. So turn that on its head. Those who were poor and had not were considered to be, they must be cursed or God must not appreciate them or love them or they must have done something wrong in their life that led them to be in this position. And there's no way of getting out of it. Like I said, today's day, there are ways and programs and, and, and there's at least a chance, at least some sort of a chance. I'm not saying it's easy, not making light of it, but there's a chance. 
Back then, it was a time of birthright and, her and, and heritage. And if you didn't have either of those and you were poor, you were living poor. And you were stuck poor and you were not coming out of it. You, there was no working extra. There was no job to get a promotion. To, uh, you, were, you were there. And that was your identity to the public. And unfortunately, the identity that they carried with you was that you were no more worth than a stray animal. Unfortunately, a stray animal can't work really hard at being a house pet. And eventually it'll be a house pet. It has to be captured and rescued. Amen? Y'all see the illustration there? No work or effort of a stray animal in the public eye can give that animal a home with the care that it deserves. And that's the image that Christ is representing here by poverty. Blessed are those who understand that there is nothing they can do. There is nothing in this world and there is no action, no program, no promotion, no car, no stature, no social media follow, no, nothing that can give them salvation, that can give them the true happiness, which is fellowship with God, that can give them the love of the Father, the care of the Father, and reconnect them to the King of Kings. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those in poverty because they fully accept their desperation and have given it to God. So what am I saying? Is it sin to be wealthy? Is it sin to have things? Is it sin to want things? No. Is it better to be poor then? Oh, should we stop trying to get that promotion? Should I not buy the dream car that I've been saving up for? I'm not saying that either. But by us asking those questions right now, and I'm not going to ask raise hands, but immediately in our heads, I know f for me at least, it was, so uh, would it be better just to be poor? Is it, is it bad that, you know, my family's working really hard to be comfortable? And, I, and then I was like, wait a minute. By asking that question, I am demonstrating the exact situation that Christ is trying to address. I read this knowing that Christ is talking about the heart of those people, and I still went to this place of, oh, well, what am I supposed to do? It literally just says, it's nothing you can do. And I read it and was like, okay, cool, so what do I do? Come on. Our focus is on our economics, on our stature, on our following, on our possessions, on our promotions, on whatever it may be that gives us that feeling of, I'm making it. When it's worthless, absolutely worthless. A mansion that isn't a house of God is worthless. A car that's not driven by a ministry mindset is worthless. A following of th hundreds of thousands on social media that doesn't have the intention on being a light to the hundreds of thousands is worthless. And blessed are those who know that and understand that and don't want those things because they want things of value and the only things of value is a relationship with God and they get it. Amen. 
I've struggled with this my whole life. And I slowly realized as I got this, I thought I was getting the easy beatitude. I was getting the one I was supposed to have. I've said it before when I preached up here many times. I am a prideful jerk. I love the limelight. And it's like, man, why are you called to be up there preaching? Don't ask me. It wasn't me that did it, you know? But all my life, I wanted to be seen as doing well, being successful, being the best, whatever it took. Whatever it took. I didn't stop training in wrestling until I had championships and scholarships. I didn't stop coaching in wrestling until I didn't just coach the school. I coached the national team and was getting letters from Hall of Fames. And I didn't stop. Whatever it may be, I literally destroyed myself getting no sleep, sacrificing things that I should have had my attention on so that I could be the best and that everybody knew my name because I cared and cared and cared. I was the opposite of the poor that Christ is talking about. I was not worshiping the Father. I was following the Father, but worshiping the more. And then I would try to justify it. Y'all remember in uh, the story in the garden where, you know, obviously Adam and and Eve eats of the fruit, and Adam eats of the fruit, and when God calls him, he says, Adam, did you guys partake in this fruit? And he says, yeah, that woman that you gave me, like, throws it on, tries to throw it on God like it was God's fault, you know what I mean? I did that all the time. When God would rebuke me for something, he'd be like, man, you're working too much. You need to spend some more time with your family. But you called me to be a breadwinner. I'm just trying to bring home the bakery, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you, you called me to be a father. I popped out three and four years, like, bang! <laughs> Don't do that, by the way. Don't do that. It's very difficult. Called me to be a husband and found a foxy one, you know? But unfortunately, not for the right reason. Not for the right reason. When we had our, our first son, Maverick, we prayed and prayed and prayed and knew that we wanted Jory to stay home to, to raise the kids. And so at the time, we were both teachers. And if she goes away, we were already poor as just both teachers. Now we're just one teacher. Okay. But the Lord said, that's what I want. So we started doing all kinds of other extra things. She's a great tutor. I, I, I have some online skills. And eventually God, God wound up blessing those extra things to where now we're both home with our children. And I can honestly say that for the first time, it was something that I focused on for the right reason. And I'm thankful because, you know, God puts people in your lives that allow you to do such things. And all my life, I worship the more. I want to be the best so that I am the best. I want to get on top of this podium with the medal so I have the medal and everybody sees it. I want to get it. And instead, I was like, I want to have a family that can go and do as we please. And it wasn't always easy. When we first started finally not living check to check, I remember going to my wife with what we had, and I was like, yes, yes. And she was like, that's so awesome. That means we can give this much to the church now, and we can start this scholarship, and we can give this much to the university. I'm just like, totally what I was thinking. You know, let's, let's give it away. <laughs> a new house. Who needs a motorcycle anyway? <laughs> but I'm thankful for those moments. Because this is one that Christ is directly speaking to me, and I pray he's speaking to you this morning too, because it's so easy to worship the more. The more doesn't have to be this elaborate luxury item, right? I remember I wanted a scholarship so I could go to school, so that I could get a job, and I wanted that job to not be a job. I wanted it to be a career. 
I can't get a job. I'm going to have a career. I've got benefits. And it's going to use my degree. The joke's on me. All right? I'm going to make money because I'm going to have a job that requires a degree. I became a teacher. So that didn't work out. And I, and I said, okay, well, how can I progress through life? I said, oh, it's, I'm not happy right now because uh, I'm, not, I'm not married. And we got married, and it was great. I still feel just discomplacent, and I'm not happy. I need a house. Got a nice house. Uh, it just so, still doesn't feel like a home. I'm not happy. Like, what's going on? Uh, kids. I need a family. Well, that really interrupted the whole having more money thing. And, uh, but every day I was going for the more, worshiping the more. And it became a real issue. It's not, so what is, it, what is it saying? When he says, blessed are the poor, it's not, and I've heard sermons preached on it like this before, it's not about, oh, well, the poor are less distracted so they can focus more. Like, they don't have as many distractions. We got this, that, and the other. We got the bill, I got the insurance, I got to meet with Bill, Bob, Pitt, and whatever for the, it's not about being less distracted. I don't think somebody who's poor is less distracted. They're fighting for their lives. And a little back step, when I say poor, it doesn't always have to be somebody homeless struggling on the streets. If you are living check to check, have a house, have a car, have a job, but you are struggling to get by, this is, this is who he's talking about, too. It's not about being less distracted. It's about being more intentional. It's not about having less or wanting less. It's about wanting him and running after him more. So we ask, oh, is it, is it sin to be wealthy? No. As long as your want for him to use you and your wealth is greater than your want for wealth and to increase it. Blessed are those who are poor, for they understand that these things are worthless. Thankful to have them. It's fine that I do if it doesn't create vanity and pride because I'm focused on the kingdom. See, nothing that we do can bring this wealth that Christ refers to. For the truth, the true wealth is defined by having the love of God and fellowship with him. Therefore, this is not a rule about be wealthy or don't be wealthy, or blessed are the poor, so be poor, so don't be rich. It's a, an example of an unfavorable situation who actually proves to have the heart condition that's right. So as we go through these Beatitudes in the upcoming weeks, don't have the mindset that this is a checklist of how to live, but more conditions that your heart should reflect. Amen? Let's take a look at an example of somebody who had that exact heart. If you turn to Matthew chapter 15, we're going to go through verses 21 through 28. This is the faith of the Canaanite woman. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came up to him and they urged him, send her away. She keeps on calling out for us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. 
Jeez Louise. The disparity of this woman. And Christ says, I am here focused on the children of Israel. You, a Gentile woman, it would not be right for me to take what I have here for them and toss the crumbs. And compares her to a stray dog. What does she do? Yes, it is. Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus said to her, he says, woman, and at this point I'm like, he's about to go in on this girl. Because she just like, actually, yes, it is. He says, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So first and foremost, I want to address that Jesus didn't change his mind. It wasn't, ah, you're not a children of Israel, one of the children of Israel, I'm not going to focus on you. Yeah, but sometimes dogs eat crumbs too. Ah, you know what, you're right, here you go. That was not it at all. Christ knew the intention and the heart of that woman before she walked up and spoke a word. He knew it before she was born. Christ is slick. In the same way with the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking directly to this small group of people, but he knows they're all listening, he provides a teachable moment for those watching this encounter. She came crying out to him, and he didn't speak a word, provided an opportunity for the disciples to, to demonstrate where their hearts were towards this person who was obviously desperate and made it known that he is their Lord, her Lord, and that he, she needs his mercy. She has proclaimed that in front of the disciples. So if they were listening to the Beatitudes that happened not too long ago, come on, guys. If they were listening, then they would realize, oh, where she's from and what she looks like and all that's out the window. She's desperate. She knows she needs his mercy, and she's running after it. We got to help her. We got to help her. Instead, they're annoyed. They're anxious. You see, we're at a different part in Jesus' ministry. Things have kind of picked up the pace a little bit. The suspenseful music's playing now. Things are kind of going a little nuts. So sometimes when they're traveling, they're really incognito. You know, they're trying not to be found. They're, they're performing the works and carrying out the way of, of what God would have them to do, but not necessarily as public and as in front of people because the time is coming. And so here's this woman running out, calling after him, and the disciples are like, shut her up, dude right? They're also annoyed in tongue. They're like, this chick is not even fit to be talking to him right now. Look at her. She's a Gentile. She's dirty. She's desperate. She's got a demon-possessed daughter. Obviously not in God's favor. Like, stop wasting her time. Jesus, tell her to go away. And then Jesus provides an opportunity for her to respond. I'm here for the children of Israel referring to the disciples. I'm here for the children of Israel. It wouldn't be fair to give that to you. And her response, she doesn't rebuttal that. She doesn't even say she's not a dog. She's compared to a stray animal, and she instead says, you're right. I don't deserve anything. I'm here with the mercy that maybe, if possibly, a crumb were to fall, even if it's slobbered on. I mean, if it were just to fall to the floor, I could have it. Because she understands that a crumb from the bread of Christ is worth more 
a million times over than a feast of the world and that there's nothing that can help her and her daughter and the salvation of those in her home other than God himself. And she went running. Calls her a dog, she kneels. Yeah, you're right. I am a Gentile. I am poor. I have a family that appears to be cursed and I'm not of the children of Israel, but Lord, my Lord, have mercy. I'd be too scared to do that to Jesus, just so y'all know. I'd be shaken. But she wasn't. She was bold. She demonstrated that she was focused on what it is and who he was. Why did he say she has great faith? She had a tone of commanding. Most people, when it came in the miracles, we see that they say, are you who you say you are? Can you do this? Will you please do this? She came up and said, Lord, called him by name, literally came up and said, Lord, a son of David, have mercy. She did not ask if he would. She did not ask who she thought he might be. She did not ask him to affirm who he was. She knew his power, knew who he was, knew of the mercy, and knew she needed it. Blessed are the poor, for they they get it. She knew she needed it. Her commanding at Christ was not disrespectful. It was a demonstration of certainty. Despite, remember, everywhere Christ goes, there's a crowd. Despite the ridicule she knew she would see, she knew called him Lord, proclaimed she knows of his mercies, and know he is merciful to give it. And she commanded, let me have just a crumb of it. It made me think of the old, old song, the hymn of his garment. Let me just touch it. Smallest speck will be enough. She knew her place. She did not argue. Rather, she accepted it and begged in her disparity. She also addresses him as Lord, son of David. That's a very Jewish way to address somebody in these times. There's a pride in the genealogy of whom you're speaking with. And so for a Gentile to do that, it's strange. It shows that they have a lot of knowledge of the, of the culture of, of, of the Jews and that they have some Old Testament knowledge. So Christ took all of that into account. This is a Gentile, but, a Gentile, but not just any Gentile. This is a Gentile that's fully bought in and, and, and in pursuit of me. And he picked up on that from her, what, eight words that she said. And he blessed her. And so here's the disciples over here in the corner. They're like, God, send her away, please. And he turns and has this moment with her. And then he just does the miracle. And they're like, I guess that works too. Can you imagine how that feels? But is that not us? As I dug deeper and deeper into this message, And maybe it's just a pride thing for me, but as I was looking into it, I was like, man, these Beatitudes used to make me feel happy. They're called happy. I used to read them, and it's like the keys to happiness. And now I'm reading them, and I'm like, there's just one. Might need to even change the sermon series title, The Key to Happiness. Because he's going to give all of these un, this is all of these disgusting ways to live that we frown upon and spit at, and can you send them away? All of these conditions. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to be poor. All of these. And then he looks at me who is the one looking down on those things. I'm fully sprinting away from being poor. I don't want it. I grew up in it. I refuse. I took my father away from me with all the jobs he had to work to support us. I made a promise to myself I would never do that. 
I'm in, I'm out. And he's saying, shame on you. Shame on you. Man, what happened to this being happy, you know? When we forget happiness that Christ refers to is not an earthly happiness. It's a fellowship with God. Now, there's joy in that. I'm not saying being a Christian is miserable. But if you were to burn everything that I have here but promise me the kingdom of heaven, take it. Take it. He turns the disciples in this moment's focus on the righteousness of the gospel over the keeping of the law. See, according to the law, they saw her unfit. They saw that they were in danger. They saw that it was not an ideal woman to give ministry to. And so according to the law, they're not, we paint them in a bad light so much. I even did now. The disciples are trying. They're doing their teachings. They're living that. Just can't quite get it. Who does that sound like? All of us. All of us. So let's not be too harsh on the disciples. Christ used this moment to turn them from focusing only on the law, but having that light of a new covenant and that once she proclaimed that she understands her disparity and need for Christ, she's in. Amen? Where do we get evidence of that from? Turn to Isaiah 56. Because wait, Christ said, I am here for the children of Israel. Okay, well then he just saved a Gentile. What's up with that? This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to, uh, jump into verse 6, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my mount, holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer of all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, who Christ said he was here for, I will gather still others to them besides those who were already gathered. Here again, Christ is fulfilling the law and the prophecy of the Old Testament. Isaiah, written before his coming, here he is, yet again, doing exactly proving the truth that is the word of God. I am here, he proclaimed, I am here for the children of Israel, but I am also here to gather those from the outside to join. So when he looked at this Canaanite woman who begged to be a dog under the table of her father, to possibly get a crumb if he was done with it, he said, I've got a better idea. Pull up a chair and have a plate with us. I don't care what these people around looking or saying or thinking or doing or how they feel about it. I don't, that's something that they got to work on because you have the boldness and disparity and humility to kneel before me in front of all of them, proclaim, I am a dog. I need your help. You are the one that can provide it. You are a God of mercy. You are my Lord, and I can't do it without you. So have your way. Amen. And so it shall be. And he does. And so in front of those sitting at the table saying, go away, she's interrupting our meal, send her off. He pulls up a chair. 
I'm thankful we serve a father that despite my conditions, despite my desires, despite my possessions, my pride, my stature, what I want to do, who I want to be, he finds value in my heart. He pursued it. And he placed so much value on this worthless human being that I am that he sent his son to die for me. Amen? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Not because they're less distracted, not because they have not so they want not, but because they figured it out. They found their disparity. They found that that is their identity. In the old, er, in the old times, they knew there was no way of getting out of it except through the Father. So why does Christ say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are those who understand they are nothing without them. Christ came for the Jews first. He proclaimed that, and it says that. But he also says that all who cling to the righteousness of God over their identity, over their pride, over their possessions, over their lifestyles, will be brought into the kingdom of heaven, placed on the holy mountain, and live in righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor and have accepted their need for God and understand fully that he and only he can feed them both spiritually and physically. They understand that it is only our God who can sustain life and life in truth and life everlasting. We cannot fully understand and experience the magnitude of the love of God and his gospel without first recognizing the severity of our desperate need for it. The magnitude that is, how amazing it is for him to love, forgive, and save us cannot fully be grasped until we first look internally and understand how lost we are and how damned we are without it. Pursue him this morning. Pursue him daily. Stop worrying about, am I getting too wealthy to where I'm not giving enough? Am I... Uh, pursuit of him, knowing that whatever it is you may gain, a lot or little, means nothing unless it's for his kingdom and with the idea that it's his. Amen? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.